Well, good morning. Um, if you happen to be relatively new here and you might not know it, my name is Thomas. I'm one of the pastors here with the church. And uh, again, if maybe you don't know it, I have the chance to preach about once a month. And uh, so uh, I'm, I'm here again to do that and uh, thankful for the opportunity. Um, as I've had that opportunity lately, we've been working through the book of Ecclesiastes. So we're going to continue in Ecclesiastes today. We're going to be in uh, the end of chapter 6. And um, um, actually, we're pretty much at the middle point of the book. So after the message today, we're halfway through. We've, we've moved through half of it, and we've got halfway to go. So if you happen to have your Bibles with you, you can grab them, open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We're going to read just a couple verses today, verses 10 through 12. Um, and if you happen to need a Bible, by the way, you can raise your hand and one of our ushers will make sure that you get one. So we'll read um, Ecclesiastes 6, cha- uh, verses 10 through 12. Uh, before we do that, let's, uh, let's pray again. Lord, thank you for the chance to, to be together again this morning. And uh, um, this is your day. You, you, this is the day that you have made. And so I pray that you would help us to rejoice and be glad in it. And, and, and so in and through all of the aspects of our time together this morning, help us to rejoice in uh, the good that is our being together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, chapter 6, uh, verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? All right. Well, who can tell man what will be after him? Uh, It's actually a rhetorical question, um, and the implied answer is no one. We can't know the future. But it'd be pretty cool, I think, if we could. It'd be actually a pretty neat thing if we could know the future. Um, One of my all-time favorite movies, Back to the Future. I don't know how many of you are fans of that uh, whole film franchise, but, man, classic characters there. Marty McFly, uh, Biff Tannen. What an awesome name for a character, Biff Tannen. I don't know if you remember Biff. He was, of course, Marty's uh, nemesis. And... uh, I mean, you just think of him, and doesn't it bring a smile to your face? Uh, Biff. Anyway, um, well, so in Back to the Future Part 2, that's a less popular movie, but I liked it. Uh, you have this old Biff who, who gets a hold of Marty's time machine. He goes back, in, or, and then he also gets a hold of a, a, a sports almanac from the future. Gray's Sports Almanac, I think it's called. And this book has all the results, all the statistics of of all the major sporting events for like 50 years. Um, I think 1950 through 2000. Um, I probably shouldn't know that, but I do. And uh, anyway, old Biff gets this almanac. Uh, he goes back to the 1950s, and he, and he goes to the 1950s Biff, and he, he meets up with him, and he gives them this future almanac. So just for the fun of it, here's 1950s Biff. Oh, you can hardly see it, darn it. Uh, well, that's 1950s Biff up there with his uh, sports almanac. So now Biff knows the future. Biff knows the future. And uh, with this knowledge that he has, uh, he, he gambles on all these sports events and ends up making 
all kinds of money, becomes rich, becomes powerful, and, and as the story goes. So just kind of, it can be fun to dream about uh, or wonder about what the future might hold. Fun to think about that through, through movies, through stories and other things. But, you know, obviously we can't know the future. And um, really, for all of the good that we can say of humanity, this is actually a major, a significant limitation uh, that we can't know the future. And in fact, it's, it's really humbling in that regard. And actually, the writer here is telling us in Ecclesiastes 6, I think the writer is telling us that because we can't know the future, then that limitation actually has a significant implication. Namely, we can't really know what's best for us. We can't really, no, we're really in no position to determine what is truly best for us because we can't know the future. In any given situation, um, we, can know, we, we can't know for certain how our decisions are going to impact tomorrow. And because of that, we can't really determine what really is the best decision to make. Um, now, obviously, we can make relatively good decisions based on whatever information we do have, but without knowledge of the future, we're missing a pretty significant piece. So verse 12 again. Verse 12, who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? That's a rhetorical question. And uh, the implied answer is that we don't know what's good for us. Meaning in this, in this light, we don't know what's best for us. We don't know what's best for us because we can't know the future. That's the logic of the passage. Because we can't know the future, we can't know what's best for us. And that should humble us, I think. Um, the passage really is for us both humbling and also, I think, strangely, hope-giving. So, first of all, it's humbling. It's humbling because it reminds us of who we are. It reminds us of who we are. Who or what are we? Uh, verse 10 again. Verse 10 again says, It is known what man is. Man there meaning all of us. Men, women, children, humanity. It's known what we are. What is that? Well, from verse 12 here, we're, we learn that we're really quite limited. Our days are few. They are few in number. And uh, the few days that we have are vain. In other words, in this, in this light, they're fleeting. And we pass like a shadow. Our, our existence is very thin, it's temporary, it's transitory, really quite limited. And, and uh, beyond that, given that, um, we might be able to make a few good decisions here and there, but we don't know what tomorrow holds. Very limited in that regard. And the logic of the passage, again, is that it's because we don't know what tomorrow will bring that we really can't know what is best for us. And so we, we really can't be left to ourselves to make that decision. So, I mean, you, 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 you just can't see around the corner to fully grasp the impact of your decisions today, of how those will play out tomorrow. And man, we've had this experience, right? Think about how many times you have thought, oh man, if I had only known then what I know now, man, I would have made a totally different decision. I would have, I would have said that differently. Um, I would have taken a different route whatever it might be. We have those kinds of experiences. And, uh, you know, we say, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty when we kind of have all the factors. 
And, uh, and usually the reason that we make the decisions that we do is because we do think that they're best for us. We do think that the decision we make would be good for us. Or, or one reason that we want the things that we want is because we really do think that the, that would be good for us. So we think it would be best for us. And that thought of, of, of why we make decisions or why we want what we want, that really ties us back into the previous verse, uh, verse 9. And we, we looked at verse 9 in the last sermon that I preached here with Ecclesiastes. So you look at verse 9 again. Um, verse 9 again says, Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. In other words, it's better to be content with what you have than to covet what you don't have. Well, part of what fuels that discontent, I think, in verse 9 is the idea that we think we know what's best for us. And so when we, or and then what we have, we don't think it's it. We don't think we have what's best for us. And so we're discontent. And, and so we go grope and we go looking for what we think, excuse me, is in fact best or what we think is. And the writer, the writer's telling us here, though, that we don't know what's best for us, though we might search for it. And as much as we think we do, we really don't. We don't because we don't know what the future holds. And again, I think that's part of the emphasis of these verses, and that should humble us. I think that it's intended to humble us. Um, It's humbling because maybe we realize we're not quite as equipped as we usually think we are. We, We maybe aren't quite as wise as we maybe often assume that we are. Um, I think it's humbling also because in a way, um, I think in a way when you take the, the grand scheme of things uh, I- into view, it kind of reminds us really that we're all, uh, we're all like a bunch of children. We're all like a bunch, of, a bunch of toddlers or young children. Think about young children. They think they know what's best for them. Um, mommy and daddy usually have a different opinion about what we think is best. But boy, they think they know. And uh, it reminds me, actually, of a time when... Uh, reminds me of a time with my oldest daughter, Kirka. And uh, Kirka, she was probably... Uh, I think she was maybe two at the time. And uh, we were with some friends over at the Willow River State Park in Wisconsin. Great park. Uh, if you can go visit, go visit. Great park. And uh, anyway, I remember... Uh, walking with Kirka, and we were walking uh, along the along the edge of, of a drop off that dropped off down into some actually really rough water, churning water. It happened to be really high water uh, that year, and uh, and as we were walking, of course, I was holding on very tight, and she was just yanking on me, pulling on me. Um, did not want me to be holding her hand at all. Uh, she was kind of fussing about it, whining about it. She wanted to be right there by the edge of the cliff or the drop-off, um, actually wanted to be in the water. At least that's the, the feeling I was getting from her. And, uh, of course, I held on tight. And I remember thinking back after that, I thought, this is crazy. I was literally saving her life. Literally saving her life. And she's just yanking against it and fussing about it and not getting what she wants. And, uh, and she's, of course, all bent out of shape out of it uh, because of it, all sad about it. She thought she knew what was best. Uh, let go of my hand. Of course, uh, I think I knew better in that moment, and I'm happy she's alive because of it. But if you think about that, I think in a way, we're all really like that, in a way. Um, I mean, in a sense, we're like a bunch of toddlers. In, in, in a way, we, we all think that we know what's best, 
And we get all bent out of shape. We get all upset when we don't get it. We think we know what's good for us. We don't get it. It makes us mad or it frustrates us or it confuses us or whatever it might be. Um, so you think you might, there's a job. You want a particular job. Or you, you want a particular vacation schedule or work schedule. Um, maybe there's, a, there's a, a, a particular relationship that you really want. Uh, maybe you really want children. Whatever it might be. You want it and you think it's good for you. You think it's best for you. And all upset when you don't get it. I mean, we act that way. I certainly can, can act that way. Uh, we don't get it. Um, we think it's best for us. Um, but really, we don't know for sure what's best for us. And, and, I, and I think the effect of that is that that should humble us a bit this morning. But strangely, um, there is hope in that. Um, there is hope in that limitation. There's hope here, I think, despite our discontent with our circumstances. Uh, there's hope here despite the fact that we really don't know what's best for us. And the hope is this. It's that there is one who does, in fact, know what's best for us. Uh, and namely, of course, God. Despite, um, uh, 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 or, or even if we were uh, left to our own limitations, and that would be a problem, well, we don't need to be left to our own limitations. There is one who knows actually what's best for us. And of course, that's God. Um, he knows what's best for us. God is the one in view here in verse 10. So, verse 10 again, whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with the one stronger than he. Well, the one there that's stronger than humanity is referring to God. He's the one that's stronger than than us. He, he's the one stronger than us, and we're not able to dispute with him. In other words, we're not able to really argue with God. Now, obviously, uh, we do argue with God. So it's not that we are, 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 we literally can't argue with God. I mean, we do do this, right? I mean, we, we, um, you know, we wonder why, why God is doing what he's doing. We wrestle um, with him. We wonder why he does what he does. We, we, we shake our fists at him, maybe, in frustration at times. Um, this, is, this is what we do. We, we grumble, perhaps. We dispute with God in, in, that, in that way. We, we have a disagreement with God about what we think is best for us. And uh, so this verse is not telling us that we literally, mentally, physically cannot argue or dispute with God. But its point, rather, uh, is like with verse 11, there's no advantage for us. There's no profit. There's no gain in it for us to dispute with God. There's no profit in it. And strange as it might sound, I actually think that that's, that's rather hope-giving for us. Again, at least I think it is. Um, it, it's hope-giving if we understand just who this God is who is stronger than us. And so a couple things implied in the text here. First of all, this God is the creator. He's the, he's the one and only creator. So with, with verse 10 there where you, you, you see the author speaking about things being named. Well, one commentator says that the, the writer is thinking there of God naming things at creation. So day, night, 
sky, earth, seas, uh, uh, and so on. So to, to give a name to something, to give a name to a thing in that sense is to make it exist. To name something is to make it exist. And so um, Isaiah 40, Isaiah 40 verse 26 says this, lift up your eyes and uh, lift up your eyes on high and see who created this. Referring to the stars, referring to the, the, the heavenly uh, lights. Look at these, he says. And who made all these? Answer, God did. He, brings, uh, he, he who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might. He names them. And, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. I think that's absolutely amazing. That is absolutely jaw-dropping, I think. I mean, this really shows not only that God is strong. I mean, of course, it shows that he's strong, certainly stronger than you and me. But really, it's, it's, he, he's strong kind of to a degree that's just beyond the category of, of strong. So it's not like God is strong, uh, like in a category of other things that are strong, but he just happens to be the strongest. No, he just completely blows the doors off the category. He's totally off the chart. God's is a unique strength. His strength is a unique strength. His strength is a strength that can only be had by virtue of his being a creator, the creator. It's a unique creator strength. And man, I think that it's amazing what he does with creating the way uh, that he did. You think of these the stars, for example, man, I, that, it just blows me away when I think about uh, his creating the stars. One scholar uh, points out that uh, astronomers now estimate that there are more than 400 billion stars just in our galaxy, just in the Milky Way, 400 billion. And that, so that's one galaxy, and there are 125 billion galaxies in the universe. Okay, so if you can see this slide, again, you can't see it super well, but you can see a bunch of points of light. Well, I remember when I first saw this picture in college, I, it was just captivated me. All the individual points of light on that picture, they're not individual stars. Those are individual galaxies. It's amazing that we can even get a picture of it, but those are individual galaxies. It's amazing. Um, total number of stars estimated at 10 billion trillion. 10 billion trillion. Unbelievable. Um, and here's the hope. Thinking about God naming these things. Here's the hope. The God who created all of these, he calls them by name and he ensures that not one is missing. And, and you, you, you kind of extend that out and you realize that such a God who would do that would surely not forget a single one of his people. Absolutely amazing. This is the God, this is the one referred to here in Ecclesiastes 6. He's the creator. He's our creator. And as the creator, he's in control. He has all authority. God is in control. Um, might sound cliche, but it is True, God is in control of the universe. He is sovereign. And uh, man, you, you, you think about the intricacies, or if you were to look at the intricacies of, 
of astronomy or, or astrophysics, and you, you see what appears to be just sort of kind of random uh, explosions and, and chaos and, and kind of the results of all of that stuff. Um, well, the biblical view is that that stuff is not at all random. Not according to the Bible. According to the Bible, God names all of this stuff. And uh, think about the clouds. This blows me away. You think about the clouds. Um, they randomly drift uh, take and change shapes with the wind. Um, and in, in, in what, from one perspective, that's exactly what's happening. The wind is blowing. Uh, it's changing the shape of, of the clouds, and they're kind of randomly drifting. Um, from one perspective, bad, but a much wider perspective, Job 37. Consider Job 37. It says that the clouds turn around and around, not by the wind, but by God's guidance to accomplish all that he commands them. God commanding the clouds to move as they do. God is in control of his creation. He has authority over his creation. So it really is amazing. You look at the clouds on any given day, and, 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 and you see that God, in fact, is moving the clouds. You can't, we, we don't see God directly, but we can see what he's doing directly. God's moving the clouds. It's, it's, it's amazing. God is in control of his creation. And part of what that means, part of what it means for God to have this kind of creator authority and control is that the circumstances of your life, past, present, and future, whatever happens, happens under God's sovereign eye. So he knows the past, present, and future because he has named the past, present, and future. Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they come to be uh, before, they, uh, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So think, think of that, um, thinking with verse 9 again for a second. Verse 9 saying to be content with what you have rather than coveting what you don't have. And then in light of verse 10, whatever has come to be has already been named. And so you have what you have. And you don't have what you don't have. All under the authority, the, the sovereign eye of God. You, God. God named what you have, and God named what you don't have. Psalm 139. Psalm 139, the psalmist there says to God, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Days formed for me. Days formed for us. And so, under God's sovereign eye, at God's naming, we have what we have, and we don't have what we don't have. And it doesn't do us any good to dispute with God about this. In other words, it doesn't do us any good. There's no advantage to us to, to, to argue with God. It doesn't advance our cause to, to do that. It doesn't do us any good because, again, verse 12 we don't actually know what's best for us. Think about my daughter. I, 
Um, it's, it didn't do my daughter any good to kind of yank and pull against me on the edge of that drop-off. Didn't advance her, her cause whatsoever because there was no way that I was going to let her yank out of my hands and go plunging into the river. If I did, she'd be dead. There's no way I was going to let her have what she thought was best for her. If She'd be dead probably if I did. There's no profit to kick against God. God is bigger than you. God is stronger than you. God is far, far wiser than you. And I, and I understand that at one level, that doesn't actually sound very hope-giving. In fact, that can actually sound pretty scary. Um, this idea that, that uh, well, because God is just infinitely stronger than us, then, you know, deal with it. Well, it's, in that regard, God sounds like kind of a big cosmic bully. Power corrupts as the saying goes. And absolute power corrupts absolutely, again, as the saying goes. But actually, the fact that it's God who is the one who has all this authority, it's God who is the one who has the absolute power, that's very good news. It's very, very good news, at least for some of us. For some of us, that is incredibly good news because for some of us, God is our Father. God is our Father, the one, the one who holds all this power, the one who created all things, the one who governs all things, the one who actually knows every one of our individual days, past, present, future. Not some cosmic bully, but our Heavenly Father. Not a cosmic bully at all. For those of us who are united to Jesus by faith, then God is our Father. If we're united to Jesus by faith, then God is our Father. John 1, John 1 verse 12 says, To all who receive Jesus, those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So man, I hope that you will receive Jesus if you have not. I hope that you will receive him, meaning that you will trust him. You will trust him for the forgiveness of your sins. Trust him alone. That you will trust him alone for any measure of, of favor with God. Any, any sense that you are God's child. That you're trusting Jesus alone for that fact. Because apart from Jesus, that's not true. You're not a child of God apart from faith in Jesus. But if we will trust Jesus then the Bible says, in fact, we have the right, the Bible says, we have the right to become something that we otherwise wouldn't be, namely children of God. Children of God, sons and daughters, in and through Jesus. And so, man, this, this one who is stronger than us in Ecclesiastes 6, not just some impersonal force of fate, not a, a, a little tribal deity, not a, a cosmic bully, it's God our Father. And with God's unique creator strength, with his sovereign authority, with his fatherly role, or in his fatherly role, he wants what's best for us. In his wisdom, he knows what's best for us. In his wisdom, he knows how to get what's best for us. In his power, he can secure what's best for us. So regardless of your circumstances, regardless of what you have or what you don't have, regardless of what you think is best for you. Jesus would say this, Matthew 6, 
Jesus says, don't be anxious about anything. Not about what you're going to eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Your heavenly Father loves you. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. Psalm 17. Psalm 17 speaks of God's people as the apple of his eye. Keep me as the apple of your eye, it says. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. You've heard that expression, right? The apple, you're the apple of my eye. What does that mean? That, that expression, it can mean a couple different things, but it's this idea that, that you're, you're looking at somebody and their reflection is, is in the pupil of your eye. So you, you're looking at them often and, and, and you enjoy seeing them. God enjoys seeing you. God enjoys seeing you. Or it can mean, uh, another way to think of it, um, the apple of your eye. It's a way to speak of somebody, uh, your favorite person. Or the apple of your eye is, is the person that you love the most. Or the apple of your eye is that one that you will protect at all costs. Just like you would protect the apple or the center of your eye. This is, this is you. That's you. Insofar as you are in Christ. Insofar as you're united to Jesus Insofar as you're trusting Jesus alone, you are God's son or daughter. That's you. Really, Jesus, the the best way to think about this is really Jesus is the apple of God's eye. And insofar as we're united to Christ, then that's us too. We are the apple of God's eyes. Now, Think about our earthly fathers. Of course, our earthly fathers might be limited in a million ways. It is known what man is, right? Our earthly fathers might be limited. Um, They might not know the future and so might not know what's best for them, let alone what's best for us. I certainly fall into that category. I can't tell the future, so I don't always know what's best. But not so with our heavenly father. Our heavenly father. We don't know what holds tomorrow. So here, here, here's an alert for cheesiness and corniness. Right? This is a sentence that I would say, cheesy but true. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know who holds tomorrow. Okay, that might be cliche. That might be cheesy and corny, but it's true. We don't know what hold, tomorrow holds, but we know what, uh, who holds tomorrow. And so the press, I think, of this passage, I think the press is that we would just rest in it. That we would rest in that fact. That we wouldn't fight against that fact. That we would be still and we would know that God is God, as the psalmist would say. Our Heavenly Father knows our future and He knows what's best for us. And He is determined to secure what's best for us. You've got to hear that. He is determined to secure what is best for us. And so there's no advantage to kind of kick against him or dispute with him about that because there's no way that he's going to let go of your hand and let you go plunging into the raging river because you think that that's what's best for you. He's not going to do that. He's not going to do that. He wants what's good for you. And God knows what's good for you. He knows what's best. And so you, you, you know, you think of the oft-quoted Romans eight twenty-eight. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things. God causes all things to work together for the good of his people. Now, I'm not saying that all of our circumstances are good in and of themselves. But if we're God's children through Jesus, 
then, then even what's not good can serve our good. Even what's not good can, can serve our good. It's not good to take a blade and cut into a person, right? Or is it? What if the blade was a scalpel in the hands of a surgeon who was determined to cut out the cancer? Psalm 119. Psalm 119 says, It's good for me that I was afflicted. Why? That I might learn your statutes. So in in this writer's case, it was good that he was afflicted. In other words, there were good effects from the affliction. Not that the affliction itself is good, but there were good effects from that. So, so if you're afflicted in any way, and man, if this is what it is to be afflicted, there are a million things inside of that. Um, suffering comes in many forms. And if you're suffering for any reason, I'm not saying that your suffering is in itself a good thing. In fact, it's not. Um, but I am saying that that not good thing can serve good effects. Um, it can have sanctifying, it can have redemptive effects. God determines all things and he determines our circumstances for our good if we are secured in Christ. And while that's, I think, explicit in Romans 8, I think we can infer it here from Ecclesiastes 6 as well. Again, God determines all things and he knows what's best for us. And so the writer is saying, don't dispute with God about this. In other words, accept what you have and what you don't have. Accept his naming of your circumstances as a father who loves you. Because you really don't know what's best for you. You really don't. But God, your father, does know what is best for you. And, and he does work for our best, even in very difficult circumstances. I think of a, a very long story, very short here, um, uh, I could take hours to tell this story, but I will just say that my wife and I, and some of you know the story, but my wife and I went through some very difficult, very puzzling, very heart-wrenching times before we adopted our first daughter, Kirka. Uh, went through infertility stuff for years, and, uh, and then two disrupted adoptions before Kirka came along. And one of those actually, in one of those cases, the birth mother was pregnant with twins, and she changed her mind three times. So, very puzzling. What are you doing here, Lord? Very heart-wrenching circumstances. This cannot be what's best. And I remember during that time, um, reading from Psalm 77. Psalm 77. There the, the psalmist in, is in this place of pain, and he asked the question, has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in his anger shut up his compassion? You ever ask that question in some way, shape, or form? Has God forgotten to be gracious? I mean, I remember reading that and thinking, yeah, God, have you forgotten to be gracious? What is the deal here? And, and, I, 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 and I, didn't, I don't think for a minute that the, that experience in and of itself was good. The, the relational brokenness that's involved in that whole story, the relational brokenness, uh, other kinds of brokenness that come with infertility, that come with these disrupted adoptions, um, this was not good in and of itself. However, 
it was good that I was afflicted. In other words, still today, there are ongoing good effects, I believe, of that affliction. There are good things in my life now that I believe have stemmed directly from that affliction. In my case, I think, um, one thing I would say is I think that I can now, um, I think I can understand now how a person could, could really doubt the goodness of God. I did have trouble understanding people in that case prior. Now, I think I'm more empathetic. I'm more empathetic in that regard. I can understand how a person could really actually doubt that God is good. Um, I, I think that I've uh, been a more compassionate. I think I've been a less judgmental person ever since that affliction. Not perfectly, of course. Um, plenty of room to go, grow, but I, ha- I do believe that I've grown in my compassion since then. I think I'm softer. I think I'm more sympathetic. Um, ironically, you know, God, have you forgotten to be gracious? Ironically, I think I am a more gracious person now as a direct result of that affliction. I haven't arrived. I'm not a grace graduate. I, I, I still have growth to go, but, but I do believe there's been growth as a direct result of that affliction. And I would say that that's very, very good. I would not have written that story. I would not have chosen that. If I knew the future, I would have made different decisions. But I trust my Heavenly Father. I trust that He was working for my best. I trust that He's working for the best of His people who are secured in Jesus. I believe that with all of my heart. And I believe that the Bible testifies to that. And really, beyond any here and now benefits of any kind of affliction, the absolute very best for all of us is nothing short of eternal life. Of course. That's what he's, that, that is what he has named to be our best. Eternal life with him and his people. You know, the, the writer in Ecclesiastes, he didn't have the perspective that we have. He didn't have, uh, didn't have a time machine, so he couldn't kind of work with the time machine to figure things out. He didn't have this almanac of kind of the certain future events. He didn't have the perspective that we have in light of Jesus and, and the New Testament. And so he asks the honest question, who can tell what will be after him? And uh, who knows what's good for man? Who knows what's best? And, you know, at, at, at one level, we really don't know perfectly what's going to happen to us tomorrow. And so we really don't know what's best for us. We really don't. Um, and that should humble us. That should humble us today. But God does know the future. And, and so that should give us some hope. And in fact, he's not just a passive observer of the future, but he actually names it. He actually names the future. And by his grace, we do then know some things about the future. Uh, we can know some things because the one who knows all things has been gracious enough to tell us some things. Um, and one thing that we know for certain, one thing we know for certain about our future is that, is that all of us who are trusting in Jesus for it, if we're trusting in Jesus for this, then Jesus is in fact preparing a place for us to be with him, to be with his people forever. He promises what the Bible calls new creation. This is his promise. It's this new creation in which we will only ever have what's the very best for us. That's his promise. 
if we'll trust Jesus for it. God himself will be with us. He will be our God. We will be his people. And there will be no more regrets thinking, you know, uh, oh man, I, I just wish I would have known that. I would have done it differently. There's not going to be any more confusion about, uh, did I make the right choice? Was that good or was that bad? Um, no more mistakes in choosing what is best, but we will always have what is best. This is what will come to be, and it has already been named. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, your word here, and I pray that you would make, um, make it to sink deep in our hearts to produce in us a kind of humility uh, that would be pleasing to you and produce in us a kind of hope a hope for the future especially that would be life-giving to us and pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.